seated. Amen. I feel like there might be specific things in your world that you're hoping that that will be true over. Thinking about specific trials and battles. And I just want you guys to be reassured in this truth. That God has never lost a battle and he never intends to. <laughs> That's good. It's good news. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, welcome. Uh, I want to say thank you for being in this space today. Mason said it already. We've prayed over this time. If you would go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 145. That's where we're going to land in just a moment. And as you're getting there, I just want to say if you're new to this space, um, we've prayed over you. We've prayed that your experience here would be one of God's grace and goodness, that you would see the living God today. That's what I hope uh, every time that we open God's Word, that He would make it come alive to us, and that's only available by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not because of um, my words or because of the stunning music that we get to celebrate these things. It's because the Holy Spirit is at work in this place, and we believe He's still working to accomplish things for His glory and for your good. As you get there, I want you to know that we've been in Jonah. This is going to be our fifth week in Jonah. And I just ask you to tell them to turn to Psalm 145. Um, that may be confusing. I'm Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And as we've worked through Jonah, we've seen a few things. God's sovereignty over everything. That he controls the wind, the waves, the, the scorching heat, worms, and plants. He controls everything. And we've also seen man's futility in Jonah. In his attempt to run from God, God turned him back. In his attempt to complain, he said, no, this is my will to show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And we've seen over and over and over again God's mercy displayed both towards Jonah and his rescue, towards the Ninevites. And today we're going to look at what an appropriate response to God's glory and mercy looks like. One of the most fascinating things about human beings is that we can both, two people, can look at the exact same reality and say totally different things about their experience with it. You ever experienced that? That you take your kids on vacation, you try to show them something fun and exciting, and one will have a great experience, and the other one's like, I hate this, can we please go home? One of the most fascinating things about God, too, is that you can see different responses to his glory when he dis displays what he's like. And today we're going to consider what is a righteous response to who God is. One day, all of us are going to have the exact same response. Our knees will be bowed before the King of glory, and we're going to declare him as Lord over all. And it matters today, not what's going to happen in the future, but between this day and that day when all of us will say that he's King Jesus, he's, he reigns over everything. It matters today how we respond to him. And so I want us to first look at Jonah's response. This is what we studied last week in chapter 4 of Jonah. Um, he's angry because he knew what God was like. He knew what he was like. He declares this creed about who God is and how he works in the world, and he is absolutely ticked over it. It says this in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. It's going to be on the screen. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. That's his mercy towards the Ninevites. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah's angry because of true things about God. Okay? 
He is upset about true things that God was gracious. He's full of grace towards them. He was merciful. He delights to give us something different than what we deserve. He loves to give us something better than what we deserve and not give us the bad things that we deserve. He's slow to anger. That means he's patient. He's not quick to anger. And Jonah's angry because God isn't. He's not irritable or easy to offend. And Jonah does not like this about God. He's abounding in steadfast love. He has a huge supply of steadfast love to everyone who trusts in him. And so the warning of the book of Jonah is this. You can know all the right things about God. You can even experience God. And your response to him can be wrong. I'm going to say that again. You can know all the right things. You can even have the right experience of God and your response to him can still be wrong. Now, this declaration in chapter four, there's actually seven places throughout scripture. It almost reads like a creed. And there's all these places where these four things are true about God. That he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. And the very first one of these creeds happens in in, uh, Exodus 34. The people of God have gotten his law. They've rebelled against him. And God is renewing the covenant with them. And Moses asked to see the Lord. And God declares his name to Moses. And he declares this creed to Moses. Okay, In Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and he proclaimed the Lord. The Lord a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These are God's way of saying, this is what I'm like. This is how I work. This is who I am. And Moses' response to this declaration about God, this creed of who he is and how he wants to be known in the world, is he quickly bows his head in worship and he worships him. He experienced the glory of the Lord and it changed him radically in that moment. It's transformative. So I want us to consider what does it mean for us to not just know and experience God, but to be transformed by the glory of who he is, by his character, his might, the words that he would declare over us that he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger. And Psalm 145 does that. It's one of those seven times that this exact creed is said, and the response to it is worship. It's humility. And so I want to start reading in chapter 145, verse 8. I'm going to read these verses and ask God to speak to us through them. It says this, Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your word today would accomplish all the work that it's been assigned to do in this time and place and with your people for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this passage, we're going to see three things. First, a knowledge and experience of God, what that looks like. Then a righteous response to God. And then how we might become missionaries of God's glory. So first, a right response always begins with knowing what we're responding to. A right response begins with the knowledge and experience of God's glory. So the foundation of a proper response is first knowing who we're worshiping. 
We have to know this God. He's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. How do we know and experience God? We don't just discover him. It says in the Bible that there's no one who seeks after him. He reveals himself to us. First through creation, second through the scriptures, and ultimately through Jesus. He's saying, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. This is how I work. And so God reveals himself to us. And in order for us to see him for who he truly is, he has to do something significant in the life of everyone who believes. He has to bring them from death to life. That's what it's described in Ephesians chapter 2. That once we were all children of wrath, and at some point along the way, God interrupts our rebellion and says, hey, I'm here. I'm the king over everything, and you're, you are responsible to me. You, you are accountable to me. And so he brings us from this point of death to life, and we discover God because of his initiation to reveal himself to us. God works in accordance to his character. Not only is he declaring who he is and how he works, he's acting in history and in creation in ways that reflect what he's like. You can look at creation and see this is all declaring something bigger, something greater. And we all, in order for us to respond to him accurately, we have to know him with clarity. One of the ways that we can pursue the knowledge of God is just pursuing clarity with him, to see him through the scriptures. In verse 8, it says that the back in Jonah 4, the scripture is being quoted in another place. The life of a believer is grounded in the reality of who God is. In other words, you have to know who he is in order to respond to him. You cannot respond to someone you do not know. You can't do that. And there's no way to have the right response unless... Uh, you come to know the living God. If you build your Christian life, though, on experience. Now, we're going to move from knowledge to experience, and here's what I want to warn you about before we move into that. If you build your Christian life on sentimentality, on experience, on emotional response, on the warm, fuzzy feelings that we have whenever the symbols crash, okay? If you build it, it will not be able to sustain you. There has to be a clarity in our understanding. True knowledge of God begins not only through him revealing through creation and through Jesus Christ working and experience, but through his word. And so how do we cultivate an experience of who he is? Um, our experience of the truth can't just be assumed because we know right things. Because that's the example of Jonah, right? He knew all the right things. But he didn't respond to him in the right ways. And so the psalmist here is not only declaring the true things about God, he says some things about how we cultivate this experience. Now, I'm going to get into some ways to cultivate this called spiritual disciplines. Some people, when you think about spiritual disciplines, it sounds like something awful. Like, who wants to be disciplined about anything, right? But the spiritual disciplines of prayer, of scripture, of fasting, of meditation, they're no guarantee that God's going to show up. But I can guarantee you that if you don't make space for God to show up, he will not show up in your life. They're just a way of setting the sails and saying, God, I'm open to experiencing you. In verse 5, one of the ways that he says that we can cultivate this is through meditation. He says this, on your glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. In other words, he's setting these things regularly before him. Meditation throughout the Psalms is always a command and response to God's glory. We don't try to empty our minds like Eastern meditation. We're trying to fill our minds with true things about who God is and how he works. We consider his attributes. We think on these things. And the consideration moves our knowledge to experience. We read God's word. Look, so many people, 
there's so many problems that, that come to me, okay? Just because I'm, I'm the glad recipient of hearing other people's problems. And so many of them could be solved just by experiencing God through his word and through prayer. You can read God's word and still be spiritually immature, but you cannot be spiritually mature if you don't read God's word, okay? I just read this, uh, this study this week with LifeWay Research, and in the study they pulled 40,000 people ages 8 to 80, and they wanted to see how people were engaging in scripture. And as they compiled the results, they made a profound discovery that they weren't even looking for whenever they brought it together. And it was this. The study said that if people studied scripture one time a week, which could include pastors saying, open in your Bible to this passage, okay? One time a week, they open the scripture there was a negligible effect on some key areas of their life. Two times a week. Still, no change. Three times a week. There's like a marginal, significant change that that something was changing in their life. But when they, they, uh, at the results of this study, four times a week, there's a steady climb of impact, and this is just this huge point of impact. This is the results of the study. They're going to be on the screen. Four days a week in God's Word. So this is what they found. Feeling lonely drops by 30%. Anger issues drop by 32%. Bitterness drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Sex outside of marriage drops 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing pornography stops 61%. And then look what goes up. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. Discipling others jumps 230%. In other words, here's what he's saying in this research. Being in God's word consistently, regularly changes not only our experience of God, but it changes our complete experience with the world. It transforms the way that you enter into the world. Yesterday's time with God is never going to be enough for today's trials, too. It's like this thing. It feels like uh, I've heard it called... uh, yesterday's manna, right? You can't save yesterday what God gave to you and it be enough for today. Our spiritual bedwetting, somehow it just leaves you in the night and there's a new need. There's an empty cup at the, the beginning of the morning and you're saying, hey, I'm going to need you for today's trials and yesterday's manna is not going to be enough for today. So we have to cultivate that regularly through time in God's word, through prayer, and through pursuing God's presence. In verse 18 of Psalm 145, it says this, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. In other words, all he's waiting for is for us to invite him and call on him. He's already near. He hasn't left us. His absence is only an experience of us not paying attention to him. This experience of God's grace and mercy is so important But it's so important that we clarify these things and know who he is according to his word, that we call on him in his nearness, that we're not uh, waiting on him to show up somehow significantly and never setting some space aside to say, okay, here's a space where I'm hoping you'll do it. And listen, for all of you um, who've done that regularly for years, and it feels like you're going through a dry period of time, I just want to encourage you, keep setting the sails. Spiritual disciplines are no guarantee that you're going to have some significant emotional response to God, but not setting time aside, not cultivating those things, I can guarantee you that you won't. So many things that we're anxious about, and it just brings my mind to that moment in Luke chapter 10 when Mary and Martha are trying to serve Jesus. Mary's at the feet of Jesus, and and Jesus looks at Martha and says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things 
There's so many things that we're anxious about that can take rest in the presence of Jesus. So many things that we're troubled about that he's inviting us to just take rest in his his care and concern and goodness and nearness to all who would call on him. So, we pursue this, this relationship with God through the knowledge of him and his word and through experiencing him. So many times, look, I can tell that we have knowledge without experience because I can just see it in our worship, okay? Look, I'm picking on you if you don't sing. I'm just going to pick on you for a minute. Uh, uh, several years ago, uh, Al Roker did his morning report of the news, and here's what's happening in your neck of the woods. And he was underground next to a nuclear warhead, okay? And he's like, today I'm reporting from underground next to this nuclear warhead. And then suddenly he goes back to, and here's what's happening in your neck of the woods. And I'm thinking, you're standing next to a nuclear weapon, okay? And so many times, so many times, that's what our response to God is like. We're just like, here here we are, reporting again. Yep, he's never lost a battle. Never will. He's never lost a battle. He never will. And we're standing next to the most important reality that God is alive and that he desires to present himself alive to us today. He desires to present himself as the living God. And so as we pursue the knowledge of him, we also must cultivate that experience of him, that we would meditate on his wondrous works and glory, that we would spend time in his word every day, not just the days that feel like you're not in a rush. Take space to pursue his presence because there's so many things that you could be worried about, but there's really only one thing that's important and hear the words that you spoke to Mary. She's chosen the better part, the thing that will not be taken away from her. She's chosen to sit at the feet of him. And so, Psalm 145, back to the text. What is a righteous response to God's glory? In contrast to Jonah, the psalmist is framing up what this righteous response looks like. There's so many ways that God's mercy could move us when we surrender to it. And so what does it look like to surrender to that? There's several ways that we're moved when we're spending time in God's glory and presence and cultivating this experience of him. The righteous response moves us from understanding who he is to having a reverence for who he is. Jonah had the same confession, but it was like an empty creed for him. Dead orthodoxy. It can be moved to spiritual vitality and biblical spirituality. And that's what the psalmist is talking about from from just understanding to a real reverence. It moves us not only from understanding to reverence, but it moves us from pride to humble praise. Listen, mercy will only offend those who are proud. The reason that it was so offensive to Jonah is because he felt like these people didn't deserve it. He didn't see himself in the same category as those who didn't deserve God's mercy. It moves us from proud to humble praise. When we see our own need for God's mercy and we respond to it with humility, we see that we stand in great need and it leads us from pride to humility. Like the, like the song says, out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus I come, into thy freedom, gladness and light, Jesus I come to thee. Out of my sickness and into thy health, out of my wanting and into thy wealth, out of my sin and into thyself, Jesus I come to thee. It moves us from pride to humility. It moves us from our autonomy, individual autonomy, to surrender. Verse 1, he's our God and king. He's the one we follow and obey. 
We praise him as the Lord who reigns over everything. He's not something that we're trying to fit into our busy schedules. He's saying, I'm inviting you to be part of my story. And it moves us from autonomy to surrender. It moves us from entitlement to gratitude. Jonah's angry about his shade going away. And those that are worshiping God, the King of Glory, are moved by what they don't deserve. They constantly see these things, these realities, as a gift that's coming from God's hand. In gratitude and praise, all your work shall give thanks to you. All your saints shall bless you in verse 10. And it moves us relationally from greed to generosity. Jonah didn't want to go, didn't want to see God's mercy extended to his enemies. And the psalmist is not only receiving God's mercy, but he's declaring it to others. He's saying, listen, this is what God is like. This is really good news. Which is my last observation. It moves us as missionaries of God's glory. One of the greatest mercies shown to us is that God allows us to be part of him declaring who he is to the nations and to our neighbors and to our families and to our own hearts. One of the ways that you meditate on this good work of who God is is that you speak, declare, you sing praise. All of these verbal ways that we're setting God's works in front of us. We're thinking on them. We're, we have access to the most incredible purpose in the world. Look, the reason that all of creation was built was to declare God's glory. And so he's saying, hey, I want you to be part of that declaration. I want you to be redeemed so that you can be the, the proclamation of my excellence to the world. And so in verse 4 it says, one generation shall commend your works to another. In other words, you're looking at the people before you and that will go after you and say, I want to tell you some good things. The most noble thing that I can tell you is about God himself. Verse six, we shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. That means verbally speaking. So even if you're an introvert and really quiet, there's moments where you can actually make your vocal cords move. (laughs) You make sounds come out of your face. To declare good things about who God is. You declare gratitude over all the things that you don't deserve that he's given you. And practically it means that people will experience us as changed individuals. One of the ways that we declare the glories of who God is, of who God is to us, and how he's acted towards us, is by them witnessing our personal identity changing. As recipients of mercy, we get to declare God's glory every time that we don't act entitled, every time that we're grateful, every time that we're humble before him, because we're saying the greatest need that I've ever had has been met in Jesus. So what else do I have to fear? I don't even have to be afraid of death. And so when people experience that, they can see the glories of who God is. This also happens through regular confession, through transparency, through accountability. If we regularly confess our sins to one another, our weaknesses, look, we're not pretending that we're better than we are because we don't need to. God's already found us out. He's already seen our worst. And so we don't have to pretend to be better than we are. Isn't that good news? It's like a huge relief to everyone hoping that they are better than than they think. And hoping other people will be better, thinking better of themselves than they do. One great example of this is Paul to Timothy in chapter 1. I mentioned this last week, but I love this verse. It says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. In other words, Timothy, your mentor, Paul, I'm writing you to let you know, look, I'm the very worst. You're in a long line of people who need Jesus. Follow me as I follow Christ. And I'm following him with the need that I have. And so look at the next verse. But I received mercy for this reason. What's the reason 
Paul's going to say that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he just erupts into praise. Now, what's his praise motivated by? His own story, his own need, his own confession of sin. And he begins to praise God to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's just at the beginning of this letter. He says, I'm just getting started, Timothy. I'm just getting started. I want you to know something. You can follow me and other people will follow Christ because they see that somebody real who's wounded, who's weak, who has a story of God's grace poured out in their own life. That's one of the ways that we demonstrate God's glory to the world that we're saying, hey, we're not pretending. Okay, we're not actually better than other people. We might actually be morally worse. We just know it. Okay, we know it and we know that our need has been taken care of. It changes the way that we're personally being presented to the world, it also changes the way that we relate to the world. We become distributors of the same thing that we've received. I already talked about this last week. In Matthew chapter 18 and 33, Jesus tells this parable about a king who wants to settle his accounts. And he has some people that owe him some money. So he brings this guy in that owed him a lot of money. It was so much money that his family was going to have to become slaves to repay the king for what they owed. And he cries for mercy. And the king is merciful with him. And that same servant went to someone else who owed him much less money. And he demanded that he be paid. When the king found out about it, he goes to the man saying, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant when I've had mercy on you? One of the ways that we declare God's glory to the world is that we become the most gracious, forgiving, least offended, least irritable. We start resembling God and being slow to anger because it's really hard to take us off. we, We don't demand that our debts be paid back to us because we know we had a bigger debt than anybody has ever owed us. We had a huge debt. And Jesus said, I'm going to take care of that for you. And so he gives us this opportunity to be demonstrators of that same kind of debt forgiveness with every person that we come in contact with. In our marriages, with our kids, with our parents, with the people we work with, with the people we're most irritated by. He's saying, look, I want you to be a demonstration of this reality. I'm slow to anger. I'm not easily offended. So... One of the ways that we become missionaries is both personal, it's relational, and then he gives us this missional identity. The conclusion of Psalm 145 is this. It leads to praise, and the praise leads us to enjoy God's presence, and it also leads us to declare God's glory to others. We speak of his awesome deeds. We not only know, we make known. Verse 12, we make this known to the world. The overarching message of Jonah is that God is merciful, and the the complexity of who he's merciful to is not up to you. Every nation, every tongue, every language. It's beyond ourselves. We don't get to pick and choose. It's beyond our preferences. He puts us into a family of faith where we wouldn't necessarily pick out each other to be friends with. He says, I want you to be a family together because you're glad recipients of something you could not give to yourself. And so I want to end with these two questions. The first one is this. Do you know the living God? I want you to wait about it for a second because some of you probably like, yes, I walked the aisle when I was in the sixth grade. I went to the church camp and I did the thing. I want to ask you again, do you know the living God? 
or do you know about him? Jonah had an experience with God. He had knowledge, understanding. His creed was accurate. But he did not delight in this God. And so I want to ask you, do you know him? Do you know the experience of God's mercy? Maybe it's been a while since you meditated on God's righteous deeds and majestic works. Maybe it's been a moment since you let those things permeate you. And you need one of those Isaiah 6 moments where the glory of God fills the temple and you're like, holy, 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 I'm undone, woe is me. Maybe it's been a while. I've prayed today that if you just know about God, that you would come to experience Him. I've prayed that that would be the purpose that this message would have in this room. And if you're hard, your heart's hard, maybe you feel like God, you think God's mercy is enough for everyone else, but you're not really sure about yourself. You're not really sure if He cares or has an affection for you. This guy says it better than me. Thomas Goodwin in The Heart of Christ, he says this, if your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, his mercies to liven it. If you be sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you be sinful, he has mercy to sanctify and cleanse you. As large and as various are our wants, so large and various are his mercies. So we may come boldly to find grace and mercy to help us in time of need. A mercy for every need. All the mercies that are in his own heart, he's transplanted into several beds in the garden of promises where they grow. And he's abundance of variety of them suited to all the variety of diseases of the soul. And so if you've been religious... He has mercy for you. If you've been rebellious, God has mercy for you. He's kind and he's near and he's righteous and he's inviting you to see him today. Not just know things about him, but to experience the living God. Do you know him? And the second question is like the first. How are you responding to God? I began with that reality that that two people can look at the exact same thing and have a completely different reaction to it. To those who know that they need him, your response is sweet. To those who do not yet know that you need him, maybe you feel a sort of indifference towards God himself. Maybe you feel reluctance. Personally, Are you approaching God's throne with confidence, with humility, with your need? Relationally, are you responding to his mercy by becoming more merciful to those around you? Missionally, are you declaring God's mercy to the world? There's so many things that keep us from these kind of demonstrations of mercy and distributions of God's mercy through us. And so I want to give you a few reasons that maybe your response is a little bit like Al Roker next to the nuclear war plant, okay? If you're just unmoved today, it could be, I'm sure there's lots of options, it could be spiritual pride. Maybe you've concerned yourself with the right beliefs and it's become empty orthodoxy to you. And you don't remember the last time that you felt God's nearness and you were so broken over his forgiveness towards you and grace towards you. Maybe it's just a coldness of spiritual pride. 
You no longer have experienced your need for him. It feels like so long ago that you felt in great need of his kindness towards you. That could be a reason. Another reason could be spiritual greed. One of the ways that we can distance ourselves from a righteous response to God is that we're so good receiving grace, but we still have a hard time to give it. You like, you're like that servant that's like, I'm really good with you canceling my debts, but I gotta hold everyone else accountable for theirs. So how are you responding to him? Is he making you more gracious and kind and forgiving? More overlooking of other people's weaknesses? Do you have a righteous response to this God? Or maybe it's just spiritual drift. Look, all of us have human flesh and it makes us like a car out of alignment. Anybody ever had a car out of alignment? You take your hand off the wheel, it's going towards the ditch. You didn't drive it there, it's just going there. As soon as you take your hands off the wheel and you don't put yourself in those lanes where you're saying, Lord, speak to me, help me to respond to you, you're going towards the ditch, okay, of spiritual drift. You're just going to do it. Maybe you haven't been troubled by God's holiness or by your own sin in so long that it keeps you in this place of just living for yourself. You concern yourself with things, but they're all surrounding your little world. And God's saying, hey, I got a great big universe out here that I would love for you to be part of. And you get to enjoy the most important thing of all, myself. That's what he's saying to you. That's his invitation to you. And so the remedies for all these things is to experience and to know God's glory, to allow it to transform you into an agent of God's mercy. So I want to ask you, how long has it been since you just enjoyed God's presence, where you just sat with him and you didn't need him to say anything to you? You didn't need some moment of clarity. You just needed him to be with you? How long has it been since you just enjoyed the nearness of God? And I know for some of you, you're walking through a really significant type of trial or testing, and it feels like really poor evidence that God is kind. If you look at your life and you're like searching for some kind of resemblance that God has been good to you, here's what I want you to know. Maybe if you feel unimpressed by God's mercy, I want you to know that the evidence of God's mercy is not your circumstance, your lack of suffering. It's not anything that you could look at except for Christ. The evidence of God's mercy to you isn't your life going smoothly. It's Christ himself beaten, rejected, blood poured out for you, misunderstood, abandoned, betrayed, in your place for your sins. That's the evidence of God's mercy. It's not everything going well with the business deal. It's not every argument going well with your spouse. It's not everything going great in your career. Those are not evidences of God's mercy. God's mercy has been poured out and demonstrated in this, that Christ himself would be abandoned, rejected, betrayed, and suffered in your place for your sins. And so your deepest shame, regret, those are not places where God just wants to visit and redeem. He wants to draw near to you in that mercy. He wants to come near to you. His mercy is not restrained or cautious like other people that you might know. It's free and full. And God's mercy, our response to it is worship. That's what Romans chapter 12 says. A reasonable response to this is us going, yes, God, you're great. Us agreeing with him with praise, like vocal sounds that come from our lips where we say, God, you are good. That's a reasonable response. And our lives being poured out. And so 
Maybe you're doubtful, and I just want to read this over you today. This good, good news that God is rich in mercy. And that means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which the divine mercy passes, but home in which the divine mercy abides. It means that the things about which that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. (laughs) It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It's unrestrained. It's flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. Love that word. (laughs) It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him. But the very thing he loves most to work with, it means that our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. And it means that the day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we have. (laughs) That's a great picture, isn't it? That one day we're just going to be blown away at how small our view is. (laughs) We're going to be shocked. (laughs) We're going to be blown away at how small our view of God is in this moment. And look, some of you have really accurate views of what he's like. It's still small. It's still small. That book is great. By the way, Someone gave our church a copy for every single person. And so you can pick it up on your way out. Personally, my prayer for you is that you would not only receive this grace today, but that God would transform us into a humble, grateful, unentitled, worshipful recipient of his glory and that his goodness would transform the way that we distribute things relationally. Relationally, my prayer for you is that you would become the most gracious, merciful, slow to anger, me too, people. Because we've experienced God to be those things. That we would be missionally minded, praying that we would never lack the motivation to say, this is what God is like. Come and know him. That you would not only know and experience him, but be transformed by his grace. So that your reaction to it looks more like the psalmist and less like Jonah. And with that, I want to pray over you. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would make us not just recipients, but distributors of your gospel and grace. And I pray this. For the sake of your great name, Lord. And for our good and for your glory. Amen.